Back to Ruth, we turn this morning and to the third chapter, Ruth chapter 3. We'll pick up at verse 1. This is page 223 in your pew Bible, if that's helpful. Ruth and Naomi have returned to Bethlehem, two widows, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, at the beginning of the barley harvest. The narrator was very careful to add that time stamp, wasn't he, there at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. Last week we noticed another time stamp at the end of chapter 2. Ruth gleaned the field of Boaz till the end of the barley harvest. When we come to the end of chapter 3 this morning, we will have yet another transition that we will see to yet another scene. So the book is divided, Ruth is divided neatly into uh, scenes, one right after another, and each carefully crafted, as you've noticed probably by this time, to leave you longing for what comes next. And in that regard, today's text will be no exception. Uh, We will leave here this morning longing to find out what's going to happen next. This is just one of the myriad of evidences that I could present to you concerning the amazing skill of this narrator, of this storyteller. The book of Ruth is a literary masterpiece. Easily we could have turned these past seven sermons into a seven-part fine literature class studying the fascinating nuances of language and composition that go into making this a truly riveting book, more so in the Hebrew, actually, than in the English. But the writer of Ruth, as is the case, and as we've seen so many times, particularly in our evening studies, uh, so much of the literature of the the Bible shares this in common, and so many of the writers in common, that uh, there's much more here than just history. The narrator is not merely historian or raconteur. He is also a theologian. In Ruth, we learn both history and theology. We learn ethics and events. We get real life, flesh and blood, Christian life. For example, we get here in Ruth divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Recently, my dear friend and I were out running uh, together, as we are wont to do. And even after all these years, we sometimes get our lines crossed. Sometimes he zigs while I zag, or I zig while he's zagging. And it probably looks a bit humorous to those who are looking on and see us running down the street and coming to a corner and bumping into each other. And, and, And when I thought we were turning right, and he thought we were turning left, well, Several uh, mornings ago on Route 54, right, uh, with an eye shot, right, here we came to the five-lane busy morning highway. Ready, go, I said, and I, I bolted across the road, deftly dodging 55-mile-an-hour tra- uh, traffic like that little frog. Uh, some of you will know what I'm talking about in the early video game, Frogger, right, when the, your object was to get that little frog across the road without him getting hit and smashed flat as a pancake by uh, cross traffic. Uh, When I reach the other side, this side, I look back, find my running companion still standing on that side. 
What's the matter, I yelled to him over traffic. Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? To which he responded, I believe in the responsibility of man. <laughs> and, and, of course, the real humor of the exchange is, of course, we both believe in both, just like the Bible uh, teaches both. Ruth is a marvelous illustration of biblical truth, uh, of these truths. God, as we've seen, is clearly orchestrating all of these events about which we've been reading. It's God who put Ruth in Boaz's field, a point underscored wonderfully by the way it is recorded. She just happened to appear in Boaz's field. But Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, is going to show us that human responsibility is also uh, by no means, rather, uh, nullified by divine sovereignty. When Boaz is being a bonehead, when he's a little bit clueless, slow to pull the romantic trigger uh, about the woman divinely intended to be his wife, uh, Naomi takes responsibility. She hatches a scheme, an entrepreneurial plan for helping Boaz along, you know, to, to, to a thoughtful, uh, she, she, she comes to a thoughtful and intentional and, yes, risky enterprise of human responsibility that we will consider after we pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the marvelous way that you reveal your truth to us in story and in stories skillfully and wonderfully told. Father, we pray that we may have a glimpse of the beauty of your word this morning, even as we receive its commandments, that we may have a glimpse of the beauty of our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Ruth chapter one, 3, beginning at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor. And she did, as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten, eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, Good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, let, uh, th- uh, uh, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and Hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi to use a theological term, is taking the bull by the horns. Earlier back in chapter 1, remember, even through a veil of of bitterness and of anger against God, she had prayed that God would give rest to her daughters in the homes of loving husbands to provide for them. Now she sees in the case of Ruth, it's time to take action. Prayer alone will not present Boaz on the doorstep in a tuxedo. Now she must put hands and feet to her prayer and act. My daughter, she says, now having risen above the foggy shroud of grief and of bitterness that always causes us to keep our eyes centered where? On ourselves. As they have risen above that fog of grief and bitterness, now she turns to Ruth and she said, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? It was her responsibility. So here's the plan. A risky plan. It's a plan pocked with potential pitfalls, a plan that could easily, easily backfire with terrible consequence for Ruth and, yes, for Boaz, too. And it was a simple plan. Wash yourself up, put on your best perfume and your cloak. I expect that would be a beautiful cloak as well as functional. And head down on a cold, you know, cold Uh, night during the harvest season and head down to the threshing floor, my daughter. The point, of course, is utterly unmysterious. She was to make herself pretty and desirable. 
These steps are all designed to make Ruth as attractive to Boaz as possible and to gain his interest in making her his wife. But she goes on, do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, I mentioned this is a risky plan, and it was very, very much so. Any Israelite who read this history, upon coming to these words, head for the threshing floor, spoken to a woman, particularly, especially under these conditions, would instantly hear in their heads, prostitute. This is harvest season. Near the end of that season, the men would camp beside the piles of grain that they had reaped and done all the work of threshing. You know what that is, You're taking the grain and tossing it up in the air on a, on a hilltop threshing floor so the wind blows away the chaff and the grain. All the work that they've done, they're going to stay and guard them. The work of the day would have been very hard, and so nights were given to relaxation and in some cases to women of ill repute. The prostitutes knew this, and they capitalized on it. Hosea even points this out in his book of prophecy in chapter 1, verse 9. The, the uh, prostitutes would go to the threshing floor to find their wages there. So this is an edgy plan. Uh, it's edgy from the get-go, especially for Ruth. Remember, you know... As if you could ever forget reading this letter of Ruth. How many times has the narrator not said it and said it and said it again? Ruth, the Moabitess, you know, from Moab. <laughs> she's not only a foreigner, the narrator doesn't want you to forget. She's a foreigner, an outsider of the worst kind. Back in Numbers 25, we read about Moabite women leading the Israelite men into sexual immorality, into idolatry. And you remember the origin of the Moabites, right? Where did they come from? They came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. So, you know, Moabite women don't exactly have the most sterling uh, picture, uh, positive, don't leave the most positive impression in Bethlehem. This may go a long way toward explaining why it was that Ruth got the silent treatment, as we saw when she first arrived at Bethlehem with Naomi. The silent treatment from the women of Bethlehem. So Ruth is entering a very risky plan. As I said, the scheme of Naomi's is also, opposed, also poses a risk to Boaz. I mean, to be caught with a Moabite woman in the dark, on the threshing floor? That's not something a man's reputation can survive in Bethlehem. Nor would taking a Moabite wife have been less than socially awkward at least and scandalous at worst. Who would be willing to take such a risk? Ah, Naomi, she's got a pretty good idea, doesn't she? Thinks she has a pretty good idea. Boaz is our relative, she assures Ruth. He is a kinsman redeemer, one who can take responsibility for us, for our care, being a relative of my late husband, Elimelech. But before it gets better, it gets worse. Here's what you do, Ruth. Watch where he lies down and when he's feeling good. And when he is 
eaten and he's drunk. He's drunk the wine and, and he's, he's gone off to sleep, a just man's sleep, right? She is to uncover his feet and lie down. I could take you through all the, all the details, but suffice to say, every single word in that sequence of Hebrew words is ambiguous and can easily mis- misinterpreted as euphemistic, every one of them, with overtly sexual overtones. Combined with the circumstances chosen by Naomi, they are potentially provocative. I hasten to add that, of course, to interpret them as sexual in nature is to misread these instructions. Uh, We've learned enough about Ruth to know that it is not her mission. This is not the nature of her mission. She is a virtuous woman. Even Boaz will point that out, as we just read in the interaction. But still it is, as I say, it's it's very, very risky and not something, dear flock, not something for you to try at home, okay? This is, as one of you ladies pointed out to me in conversation recently, this plan and this action are not prescriptive, they are descriptive. Not prescriptive, descriptive. In other words, ladies, the Bible is not in any way here commending to you this action that would risk, or any action like it that would risk your virtue or, or even your reputation as a daughter of God. It's not prescribing sexually risky behavior to secure a husband or even male attention or male affection. The Bible forbids us all from sexual immorality and from courting sexual temptation. Let me tell you something, ladies. There is no man worth having who would ever be cause for you to compromise your position of devotion and consecration to the Lord ever. In fact, even Ruth, obedient as she is and true to her promise to do all that Naomi told her to do, ends up changing the plans dramatically in the last step to make clear her intention in all of this. Remember Naomi's next piece of counsel? After she had done these things, verse 4, Boaz will tell you what to do. Boaz will tell you what to do. Well, Ruth did all the things that Naomi told her to do, but she certainly did not wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She, you noticed, told Boaz what to do. She let Boaz know in no uncertain terms what was her desire, what was the whole point of her behavior and of her presence there that night in the dark on the threshing floor. You can follow it all with me, beginning at verse 6. Ruth does as she's told by Naomi, all of it. She goes to the threshing floor. She waits for Boaz to lie merrily down at the end of the heap of grain and fall asleep. 
she uncovers his feet and she lies down. The plan works like a charm. The cold night air hits Boaz's uncovered feet and <laughs> Boaz wakes up and, and startled, behold, you know, that's that word again. Isn't that a marvelous word? Behold, we've looked at it before. The man was startled, uh, understatement of the year. He looks down and in the darkness, you know, he smells her before he even sees her, right? A woman lying at his feet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you? He asks, low enough so as not to wake up all the other men around. Now, at this point, Ruth diverts sharply from the plan. She does not wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. No, she tells him, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. More linguistic subtlety here, right? Except now we're talking about a true double entendre. By spread your wings over me, Ruth clearly and unambiguously is saying, marry me. She's proposing to Boaz. We know this because of passages like Ezekiel 16, 8, in which the Lord says to Israel that in that extended metaphor in which he likens his relationship uh, to his people as that of a man to his bride, when I saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into covenant with you. Well, that's what Naomi's banking on. <laughs> that's what she has in mind, as we read back in verse 2. And so that is what Ruth requests from Boaz. Yes, she has reason to expect that Boaz will consider her request very seriously. He is their kinsman redeemer, after all, a term that we've defined uh, last time and the time before. But still, again, all of this could have ended badly, right? I mean, Boaz could have been offended. He could have taken offense at this whole thing. Or, or if he was a, less of a man of character than, um, than Naomi had imagined, he might even have taken advantage of Ruth. The entire situation is, after all, highly irregular. A woman proposing to a man, a younger woman to an older man, an alien to an Israelite, a field worker, no, a field gleaner to a field owner, etc., etc. One one of my commentaries puts it this way. It says that Ruth's request required more than a little chutzpah on her part. Don't you imagine that Ruth had to be thinking in the back of her mind the whole time about how this whole thing could certainly blow up in her face? This was a huge risk. But it was the way that Naomi and Ruth took responsibility. That's the way they took responsibility. This is Ruth acting righteously. Righteous Ruth. She knows that her words leave a great deal to be desired, of course, but she also knows, Ruth 
knows that her future doesn't really hang ultimately on her oratorical skills or on her mother-in-law's cunning. God, she knew, Yahweh, the Lord, is ruling over all things. Sovereign providence, therefore, established, to use the words of our own Westminster Confession, established human responsibility. Her righteous response, her obedience, her weak and feeble obedience, as it certainly may be, as we studied together just this past Sunday evening in our Studies in Philippians 2, Ruth here is working out her own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God working in her to will and to act according to his good purpose. Sovereignty and responsibility are here cheek to jowl. And amazingly, it works. Boaz doesn't act on his fleshly instincts. Remember last week, don't make Boaz a porcelain saint. He doesn't act on his fleshly instincts to take Ruth into his arms and into an act of passion on the scene. He does not take advantage of your, her. He doesn't say to himself, he doesn't reason as sometimes done, well, we're going to be married someday anyway, so let's go ahead and enjoy the threshing floor now. Tempting as it most certainly was, Boaz remains an honorable, a righteous redeemer, even as he recognizes Ruth's righteousness and immediately sings her praises. Impeccable righteousness of Ruth. But before I get to that, men, I have a searching question for you, men, boys. Is that your reputation? Is this your reputation, particularly with regard to women? Are you a man of integrity? Are you a man of righteousness? A truly righteous man more interested in preserving and protecting the reputation and the honor of women, particularly of your sisters in Christ, than in satisfying your own personal desires and pleasures. Men, can your sisters trust you implicitly to protect them, to respect them? They should. They should be able to do this. This is one of your great honors as a man. This is a great honor for you men this is one of the ways that you get to shine as lights amid a, amidst a crooked and twisted generation such as ours in the world while men all around you are by and large treating women objectifying women using women as means to their own ends you may show true chesed Real love, real kindness, mercy, covenant faithfulness by treating the members, all of the members of the opposite sex with dignity, with honor, with respect as those created in the image of God. And yes, as the Bible says, weaker vessels and therefore to be protected and cherished 
and honored and cared for and encouraged and praised by you in every way, body and soul. Men, be men. Be these kind of faithful Christian men. Look at Boaz. This righteous redeemer exercises that righteousness, not least by having eyes only for Ruth's righteousness here. Did you notice that? Right to the point. Ruth, you are a righteous, you are worthy, he says, a worthy woman. And then he adds this. This is so wonderful, delightful. And everybody knows it, Ruth. Everybody, all the townsmen know it. They all agree with me. Was it true? Did every single one of them agree with it? It doesn't matter. He's praising her righteousness and encouraging her in her righteousness. Everybody knows what I know. You are a worthy woman. Your reputation is sterling. He praises her for, then for her, her kindness. For her, the word again, we've studied it in depth, is chesed. Verse 10. Now is Ruth's chesed showing itself. Verse 10. In choosing to marry him. Him. When, when she, in fact, a woman as beautiful as Ruth, inside and out, she could have had her pick of men. She could have had any man, a young man, rich or poor. He chooses him. Ah, oh, righteous Ruth. Of course he's willing to redeem her, and he'll go on, as we'll see in Another day to prove his worthiness as a righteous redeemer by righteously handling a complication that we just read about a little while ago that neither Ruth nor Naomi had anticipated. But notice with me for now that Boaz begins now to take risks too. Stay here, she says. He says. Stay here, lie down until the morning. And she does, but neither of them sleep very well. At least, can you imagine they did? <laughs> it's important, you see, for them, for the preservation of her reputation and his, for her to be gone before anyone can recognize her. But before she leaves, he loads her cloak with so much barley that, that uh, to go that he, did you catch that little detail? He has to help her lift it. He has to... The, load this upon Ruth. Six measures of the stuff. Probably, and we could go into all the details, but probably around 80 pounds of barley. Now, Ruth is a lovely girl, but she is no frail waif of a creature. This gal's got some muscles, too. And uh, off she goes. Well, we're running out of time, and, and so we're going to have to get to applying all of this to ourselves and um, consider what, what duty does God require of us here? What duty does the Lord require of us in Ruth 3? What's our responsibility as we consider righteous Ruth? Well, I think we begin to understand when we consider all that Ruth has risked here. She, is, she has gone to great risks. And I think 
And the question then for us to ask ourselves is this, what am I willing to risk for my Redeemer? What am I willing to suffer for my Savior? Elder Thomas and I were talking about this just yesterday morning uh, here. What are we willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? You know, people risk lots of things for lots of reasons, for rewards, great and small, for personal gain, for a sense of accomplishment, for fun, for promotions, whatever. But what are you willing to risk to pursue Jesus as your Redeemer and to see his glory, his fame, his gospel spread around the world, beginning in your neighborhood? Steve and I talked about what persecution, even torture, we might one day face for the gospel. But what about, let's start here. What about the embarrassment that might come to us in a simple conversation about Christ with our neighbors or with your friend or with your coworker? And what about the displeasure of people around you when you take a, a stand that's not popular, that's not woke? That's not politically correct. What about even the discomfort of refusing to even chuckle at a dirty joke when everybody else around you is laughing? If you want to diagnose your willingness to make spiritual risk for God, for your Redeemer, then consider your willingness to talk to others about God. Or as the case may be, your unwillingness. What Francis Schaeffer called our guilty silence. We're not talking about risking our entire reputation here at midnight by some pile of barley uh, during the harvest hour. We're talking about, about the risk of being thought odd by our neighbors for talking to them about Jesus. Though it may one day be, and then we shouldn't be surprised if the risk is much greater, the loss of your job, of your money, of your comfort, of your health, who knows what, maybe even your very life. Point is, we do well to take stock of our souls, don't we, by asking ourselves this morning and, and continuing to ask, what are we willing to risk? Indeed, I think more, the better question is, what are you risking? What are you risking right now to pursue your Redeemer? And then consider the opposite side, the uh, risk that our Redeemer has taken for us. Indeed, much more than risk for us, our Redeemer, whose name, of course, is Jesus, went much further than a grain pile on a threshing floor at midnight. The love of God, as you've been singing this morning, sent him from the glories and the splendor of heaven to earth to a place called Bethlehem. Yes, the very same place, the same Bethlehem here where Ruth and Boaz first met. There he entered the world as a little boy, as a little baby, but where he found no refuge. For himself. You know, Ruth finds rest, doesn't she, for herself in Bethlehem. Jesus finds no rest 
for himself in Bethlehem. No place of rest. He has to be laid in a borrowed manger, in a borrowed stall in Bethlehem. And with no godly Boaz around to protect him, he soon thereafter has to flee for his life as a baby. And as for a reputation, oh my word, what he suffered that too, didn't he? Leaving it, leaving it behind in glory to become a servant, despised, rejected by men. Indeed, he went even to death, even the uh, despicable death of, the, of, of criminals on the cross, giving up his very self for sinners, for you, for me. Risk his life? No, no. He gave his life. Why? Because you so richly deserved it? No, you're right. Because you had earned it? Because you had made yourself worthy? No, no. It's all because and only because of God's great love and mercy, His what? His chesed, that He has redeemed you for His own and given all, even His very blood for you on the cross to secure you for Himself. Now, Ruth didn't deserve to be redeemed, did she? Although we might argue she had certainly proved Proven, she proved herself worthy uh, to the Redeemer Boaz. We don't deserve to be redeemed. And we certainly never proved ourselves even remotely worthy of our Redeemer, Jesus. But he made himself our Redeemer, didn't he? Dear friends, in the hearing of my voice right now, you may have him as your redeemer too. You may. Most certainly. You can have him spread his, wing, his wings over you too, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are. The invitation is wide open to come and be redeemed. What does he want from me, you ask? Just one thing. Your heart. We sing at this time of the year in the words of Christina Rossetti. What can I give him? Ruth could say the same thing. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. That is your responsibility, dear ones. It comes down to this. Give him your heart.